Chapter 29 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. War with the Boers, the Franchise Bill, a New Election. The Egyptian difficulty was not the only foreign trouble which Mr. Gladstone inherited from his predecessors. The war with the Boers broke out. The English government seems to have been deceived into the belief that the Transvaal Republic had become anxious to be taken under the direct protection of England. Sir Theophilus Shepston, says the author of England under Gladstone, 1880-1885, was sent out to investigate the situation. He seems to have entirely misunderstood the condition of things, and to have taken the frightened desires of a few Boers as the honest sentiment of the whole Boer nation. In an evil hour he hoisted the English flag in the Transvaal and declared the little republic a portion of the territory of the British crown. As a matter of fact, the majority of the Boers were a fierce, independent people, very jealous of their liberty, and without the least desire to come under the rule, to escape which they had wandered so far from the earliest settlements of their race. Mr. Gladstone again and again denounced the conservative policy which had brought about the temporary annexation of the Transvaal. The people of the Transvaal soon proved that they were not anxious to be under the government of England. They rose in revolt, if it ought to be properly called revolt, and they defeated the English troops more than once. Mr. Gladstone had in the meantime succeeded to power. Many Englishmen, and even some of those who generally supported Mr. Gladstone, were strongly of the opinion that we ought not to come to terms with the Boers until we had inflicted on them some crushing defeat. Mr. Gladstone was not of that opinion. He thought we were wrong in annexing the Transvaal Republic, and he could not believe as a statesman and a Christian that we ought not to make peace with the Boers and give them back the Republic without first massacring enough of them to satisfy our heroic sense of honor. Nobody doubts that England could have conquered the Boers, could have sent out troops enough to extirpate the whole male population of the Transvaal Republic. Mr. Gladstone did not see honor or credit or glory or Christianity in any such performance. He sent out one of the bravest soldiers and one of the most successful generals in the English service, Sir Evelyn Wood, with the express purpose of coming to honorable terms of peace with the Boers. Peace was established on fair and honorable conditions. The Transvaal Republic was restored with a British protectorate against foreign nations and foreign invasion, and with a British High Commission, but with the entire local and national self-government for which the Boers, to do them justice, had fought so well. Mr. Gladstone, of course, was denounced by all the jingoes of England. They raged against him because he had allowed the curtain of this drama to fall upon what they called the triumph of the Boers. Mr. Gladstone went on his course unheeding. He had asked of his own mind and heart and conscience what was the right thing to do, and he had done it. It was a brave act. 
but it was an act only in keeping with the whole of Mr. Gladstone's career. The one great domestic work of the administration this time was the passing of the Franchise Bill, which was a just and necessary sequel to the successive extensions of the voting power among the people. This measure was worked to a certain extent in conjunction with the Tory party. It became a measure of redistribution as well as of extended suffrage. In other words, the whole scheme of the constituencies was recast. Many small boroughs, miserably small boroughs, ceased to have separate representation in Parliament and became merged with the population of the counties. Large counties were distributed into several divisions. The measure was carried in the manner to which I have already alluded by the cooperation of both parties, a mode of procedure which might well be commended in almost every case where the two parties are agreed as to the general necessity of a measure. Mr. Gladstone, Lord Hartington, and Sir Charles Dilke went into a kind of joint committee with Lord Salisbury and the late Sir Stafford Northcote, and the details of the scheme were easily arranged. The work of the House of Commons was never more trying than during this particular Parliament. Mr. Lucy, in his clever sketch of Mr. Gladstone, from which I have already quoted more than once, says that, for comparatively young men on the Treasury bench, the physical ordeal was trying. Mr. Gladstone, with his threescore years and ten upon his back, bore more than his full burden of the day's work. He was in his place early and late his so-called dinner hour sometimes not exceeding thirty minutes. It was no uncommon thing to find him at his post between two and three in the morning after a turbulent night. Then Mr. Lucy tells us that toward the close of the session of 1884, Mr. Gladstone broke down. The illness which took the form of fever with congestion of the lung was serious enough to alarm the nation profoundly. Downing Street was crowded with anxious callers. Mr. Gladstone, however, triumphed over all physical troubles. His friend, Sir Donald Curry, took him for a trip round the coasts in the steamer Grantley Castle. Sea and meadow and forest and open air were always Mr. Gladstone's best medicine, and he soon came back prepared to carry on the work of the session with renewed energy but it began to be gradually more and more evident that the administration had spent its force. Defeat came suddenly and almost unexpectedly on a clause in the government's annual financial scheme. The House immediately adjourned, and next day Mr. Gladstone announced, not in so many words, but in the peculiar phraseology adopted in English parliamentary life, that the government had resigned office. The words he actually used were that in consequence of a decision arrived at by the House, the government had thought fit to submit a dutiful communication to Her Majesty. Of course, everybody perfectly well understood the meaning of that. The liberals were out of office once more. They had fallen victims partly to the inherited policy of their predecessors and partly to their own conscientious desire to do justice to the people of Ireland, and yet their inability to see their way to any course which could really satisfy the people of Ireland. They went so far in one direction as to infuriate all the Tories, 
and to discourage and alienate many feeble liberals. But they did not go far enough in that direction to satisfy Ireland. Lord Salisbury was invited to form an administration, and after some hesitation caused by the difficulties of the time, he had to consent to do so. Lord Randolph Churchill joined the new ministry as Secretary of State for India. The administration did not last long. On the 18th of November, Parliament was dissolved. And the question then which everybody asked everybody else was, what is to be the result of the general elections? The vote at these elections was to be taken under the conditions of the new reform bill which Mr. Gladstone had so lately introduced. The result of the elections was to give the Tories only a nominal majority, and even that majority depended altogether on the support of the Irish members. Lord Salisbury had to go out of office after a short and uncomfortable interval, and Mr. Gladstone returned to power once more. In the meantime, the question of home rule came up again. An anonymous paragraph appeared in the newspapers announcing on no particular authority that Mr. Gladstone had come back to office, determined to deal liberally with the question of home rule. The paragraph created consternation among the Tories and even among many of Mr. Gladstone's own followers. It was met with a prompt denial by some of Mr. Gladstone's own colleagues in office. Mr. Gladstone himself preserved for a while an ominous silence. End of chapter 29